0: Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm gonna be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Hey everyone. Well, here we are back after an extended hiatus. The Blank Canvas was born during the harsh Australian lockdowns in 2020 in Melbourne, Australia. Once things opened up in early 2022, work wrapped up for me to 11 and I found I was playing catch up in many areas of my life and didn't have the time to deliver the weekly podcast. Well, I'm finally back to some kind of normality, whatever that is these days, and I'm getting the podcast up and rolling. So we're going to kick off with some highlights from some of the stellar previous guests we've had on the Blank Canvas. The first episode's going to feature musicians and those brave or crazy souls who have blazed a trail in the music business. There's plenty of gold to choose from, and in fact, it's been a challenge to pick the best parts. Thanks to my co-producer, Rin McDonald, who's helped pull these episodes together. All right, let's get started. First up is Glenn Wheatley, an absolute titan of the music and radio industry in Australia. The unexpected death of Glenn in Feb 2022 brought an outpouring of admiration and appreciation for this true one-of-a-kind and his extraordinary contribution to Australian arts and culture. Started his working life as an apprentice lithographer. Oh, yeah, lithographer. Yeah, that was the thing back then. On the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Glenn headed south to Sydney and Melbourne to seek fame and fortune. He found it and lost it a few times over. 70s rock star with the Masters Apprentices, founding the very first FM radio station in Australia. Glenn then moved across to artist management and worked with the likes of David Bowie in the UK, formed and managed Little River Band and cracked the US market, selling more than 20 million records with them. Glenn's greatest achievement, however, is his work with his best mate, iconic singer, John Farnham. Famously mortgaging his house to pay for Farnham's Whispering Jack album, to this day it's the biggest selling Australian album in history, Glenn launched Delta and her debut album Innocent Eyes is the second highest selling album of all time in Australia. Other artists he's managed included James Raine, Pseudo Echo and I co-managed my wife Kate Sobrano with Glenn for a few years in the late 90s. And I tell you what, I learned a lot from the master. Such an enthusiastic and visionary entrepreneur. He always had many ventures on the go, and it was at times a challenge to get his full attention. But once you had it, you felt like the most important person in the world. Always smiling, always enthusiastic. I had the privilege of this very personal conversation with Glenn on episode 12 of The Blank Canvas. I believe this was his last long form interview. Glenn, your legacy lives on. Thank you, and over to you.
1: What do you mean? I started. <laughs> ding, dang ding, 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 ding. I'm, I'm panicking, hearts pounding. The 17-year-olds going, I, it was all too surreal for me. And they ended up, Purple Hearts going to, to Melbourne, wanted to go to Melbourne, and I had to ask my mom, so I want to go to Melbourne with the band. So no, you can't. I'm not, I'm not letting you go to Melbourne. You're 17 years of age. You're not going to leave Brisbane and join a rock and roll band. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got a good job, you're a photo lithographer. and I had to let that one go. And eventually, based in union, I became a page, I've become 18. Um we decided to do the same thing. We decided to move to Melbourne because Brisbane was a little bit restrictive in those days. And um, we did, and that's how it all started. And we came down to Melbourne and uh, struggled to make a living. We really did not do that well. We made one single uh, for festival. Um, but we happened to live in a street, infamous, that was full of bands, on Carlisle Avenue and Bellaclava. And it was a dead-end street. And there's blocks of flats and in them we're running, jumping, standing still, Max Merritt and the Meteors, the Lardy Dars, the Masters Apprentices and the Bay City Union. This cluster wow. of bands, in all in this one little dead-end street. were struggling to make to a living
0: Masters.
1: and, yeah. We became friends with the Masters and Jim Keyes basically came to me and said, we'd like you to join the Masters Apprentices. So it was sort of the sublime the ridiculous for me because the Bass City Union was a, a little blues band and here I'm joining a pop band. Um, Matt Taylor didn't forgive me for a long time because he thought I'd sold out. But I decided that Bass City Union, were not going anywhere. We, we were struggling and we were hungry. And so I joined the Masters, played bass for them and spent the next four years of my life on this absolute merry-go-round with the Masters apprentices playing to huge out crowds of screaming kids and being mobbed on stage and all my clothes being ripped off and and all, <laughs> it was a period of time that I was sublime to the ridiculous for me but i loved every minute of it and uh, the masters were a, a real pleasure and part of my life no doubt about that
0: that's awesome mate yeah i mean as i've been researching i've read that you had bigger crowds and frenzied crowds bigger than the beatles at festival hall in melbourne with with the band
1: well, no, that it was Festival Hall in Brisbane, and oh, that night was, was a was very it? particular night. It was a very special night me because my mother was there watching with all pride her son come on stage in front of this screaming, sold-out Festival Hall, screaming kids about I must have been five thousand in those days, but it was a, a, enormous. Um, we didn't get through the first three numbers before the, the 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 police couldn't control them. The kids were just rushing the stage and ripping all of our clothes off. In the end, I had my new velvet suit just in shatters just in shreds uh, and and i was found myself down to my jockettes and one sock and the police came up and said you're decently exposed son you've got to get off the stage and i what, i had my guitar around me and but i was down to my jockettes so anyway the, the they closed the show down and the, the audience went crazy and i remember going backstage there was a 20 girls all fainted, all passed out on the floor backstage and um, stepping over them as I'm going there. And I just heard this promoter yelling out, we had a bigger crowd than the Beatles. And I'm sitting in my sock going, that hit me like a sledgehammer. And that night, as as I had to get back to Lennon's hotel and I had to walk through the the, the lobby in jockets, no socks, shoes, nothing, um, to get to my room, and I'm lying down in my room, still sweating from the from Festival Hall, from the show, my ears still ringing from the kids that were screaming and in my head it's going round and round, bigger crowd than the Beatles. Well, that night the penny dropped for me because I sat down and sat, figured to myself, if we had a bigger crowd than the Beatles, we were only paid $200 divided by four. That's $50 each. My velvet suit cost me $70. I was $20 out of pocket for a show that we completely sold out and had a, had a huge crowd at. So there was something wrong with this and I started to come up with the concept of doing what we now know as door deals. I figured that we, shouldn't the band be paid commensurate to how much we draw and not just have a flat fee? So I changed everything around. We sacked our manager at the time. I took over management of the band as well as playing bass and started doing all the bookings for the shows And doing these deals, doing door deals, doing it against the numbers that we actually drew for each night. And that was the start of something for me. I mean, um, it was a big lesson and it was something that changed our lives, really. I mean, we started to make some decent money for the first time with the Masters and it was a big night. So it was an important night in my career, that one.
0: Wow, mate. Incredible. So you started doing that and then soon after you started a booking agency, How were the other, you know, booking agents in town um, coping with that?
1: (laughs) Well, Michael Godinski was an Ambo at the time, a company called Ambo, not at all happy that we'd set up a company called Drum, and we were taking his acts. We were were signing a lot of up-and-coming acts. Between myself and Adrian Barker, who was our, our road manager at the time for the Masters, we were coming in. This was a day gig for me now as well. Here I am, nine to five, booking other bands and other attractions for, for venues around the country, and uh, it didn't go down very well with uh, with Giedrinski, <laughs> <laughs> and they all made it a bit tough for us. But it sort of came to an end because we decided to go to London. Uh, we did this thing called Battle of the Sounds, and uh, we won a trip on the Sitmar on the first Sky to London. So. That was the big move for us. We, we shut Drum Down. I'm moving to London. This is it. We're going to the big shot. Um, and we, with the help of EMI at the time, got to record a couple of albums in Abbey Road, the famed studio that the Beatles used. And um, we didn't quite the mustard in, in the UK. We struggled. We did a couple of shows at Blazers, the Speakeasy, and all those famous night of the 60s in London. Um, this was 1970 now. And, uh, but we decided to come back to Australia, and we had, had one more tour before we basically decided to pull stumps. We sort of didn't break up. We just stopped performing together, you know, and um, at that stage, I was looking for other things to do. We actually broke up the second time while we were in London, of all places, and I ended up getting a job in a management company that, fortunately for me, was involved in the management of people like David Bowie, The Suite, and... I was front and centre with all of those acts simply because my boss, a gentleman called Lawrence Meyer, who's one of my great mentors in life, was a very conservative English gentleman. And David Bowie used to turn up at the office sometimes with lime green hair. The next day it was tangerine. And they used to freak Lawrence out. Lawrence, come coming to me. He's got lime green hair today. I can't do this meeting. You're going to have to do the meeting. Wow. So Wow. Oh, I do the meeting <laughs> with David Bowie, isn't it? So with my one of my idols, going, oh my god! And in those days, he always was a genius. He always was creative, but he was he was doing a little bit of too much drugs, and he was, uh, you know. At some sometimes Lawrence used to say, his, "His teeth are lime green as well as his hair," you know. <laughs> so he used to freak Lawrence Myers out.
0: Wow! Thank you, Glenn okay next up kate sabrano this conversation happened while kate and i were in lockdown in australia in 2020 it was a rough morning for kate the funeral of her dear friend and acclaimed singer michael falzon had just taken place in sydney and kate was unable to attend due to the board closures. it made for a deep and reflective conversation if you're new to kate she's a unique and prolific artist Just a few weeks ago, she released her 30th album, celebrating 40 years as a recording artist. It's called My Life as a Symphony, and it's recorded with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Check it out. I'd describe the secret to Kate's success as being relentlessly creative. The barriers and the haters come thick and fast when you put yourself out there. And, well, for over 40 years, Kate has just pushed on no matter what. Over the COVID years, with live performance at a standstill, she picked up a paintbrush to keep her head together mostly. Two years later, and she has a serious side hustle as a painter with commissions for her work coming in from all over the world. Anyway, let's hear from Mrs Rogers in the midst of a strict Melbourne lockdown.
2: If I was going to have a soundtrack to The Times, for me, it will be this track from this album, In This Time and Forevermore, which is The Girl on the Highway.
0: Tell me about that song and why that one.
2: Because it starts off with a scene with someone optimistically sort of um, strutting down the centre of town and you've got this idea there's a bit of a swagger in this person's walk, Uh, hands are thrust in the coat and a little bit of a show pony until there's something within this song and the narrative that represents ridicule and it happens to anyone who's been famous, there'll be an opportunity for someone to have a go. I often think about like that day I watched that most horrendous video footage of Tom uh, being attacked on a red carpet by someone with an object with fluid that he didn't know what was happening or what was in it. It could have been battery acid. And it was such a destructive and unkind gesture when Tom was there valiantly giving so much interest and affection to all the people in and on that carpet. Anyway, within the song there's this opportunity for ridicule and I've I've experienced ridicule. I've felt ridiculous sometimes and known people were laughing or I'd walk out of a room and people would talk or, you know, for whatever reasons. It's just fame. It just is. It's one of the liabilities of fame. But then I recovered my own sense of dignity. I had a family, you know, I gave birth. I I changed my mind about my value, my how irrelevant the body, the body bag is, and got back to music again and recovered my grace. And in there it describes how we put all that shit on a bonfire and let all the criers, meaning the town criers, sing hurrah, look, we've just built a fire and chucked all that shit on top of it and now the girl... She's free to walk the wire. She needs no support. She needs no security. There's nothing underneath. She's fucking going to walk that high wire. And let's all praise her. Let's all sing in her honour. And the girl is free to walk the high wire. And I just loved it. I loved that whole imagery of it. And um, as it turns out, I happened to write a really fucking deep harmony for it. And melody, which I found to this day still haunts me, because it's kind of tricky. It's not just your three chords written badly on an ill-played guitar. I feel like they were really considered and, yeah, it'll be quite my opus. I love it.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful record. What did Steve Kilby say to you when you first saw him after you'd met, after having written and created this album together?
2: Oh, what did he say? I don't know. It was probably something like, you know what, Kate, you're not shit. You're really very good. So it was a surprise. <laughs> I'm not surprised that he was surprised.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, do, and do you th- um, Actually
2: I love Steve Kilby. I'm completely besotted by him. He's got all the swagger anyone could ever want. And he lives full rock and roll. He's a purist. And I do admire and respect that. And um he would never have had to have taken the commercial avenues to survive as I feel or felt I had to. Um, I have been the girl on the high wire. I've been the circus dog as well. And it seems he's been none of those things. So all hail the Kilby. <laughs> and then then Sean Sennett, what a wonderful other part of the narrative. Um, interviewee to some of the greatest artists that have or ever interviewer. been. Sorry, I meant to say interviewer. And known and trusted, so he's been selected and handpicked by Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, David Bowie as their preferred journalist to do the first reviews on all of their albums. I mean, that kind of kudos comes because there's a great deal of support and trust and his intelligence allows us, both Steve and I, to have a witness so our work is not just like a fart in the dark.
0: Yeah, I think Sean did an incredible job of bringing you two together and bringing the best out in you, and I think Sean for a long time has regarded you as one of the truly great Australian songwriters and wanted to see you respected as such, Mm. if I could say that. Totally. I I get that feeling. I had a great conversation with him. I
2: feel like I've had a friend all my life who keeps seeing me do these incredible gymnastic feats in the forest going, why aren't you fucking getting on television? Why, aren't you not, why are not you not putting that on Instagram? Why isn't anyone paying you to do And, you know, and you're just doing it because it's fun. But the minute the camera's placed on you, it seems that I wasn't able to do the flips and the high death-defying triple, you know. Like I have to say, I kept feeling I was letting him down because he would say over the 20 years of knowing him, Kate, just do that and that'll be perfect you know and it just yeah. i don't know oh
0: he's a great songwriter in his own right isn't he, he is. I, one of the things he said to me that really resonated was nobody lands a lyric like cake sobrano i couldn't even say your name then Kate Rogers, that's why. Kate Rogers. Yeah, I love that. Nobody lands a lyric like you. And I'd have to agree, you can zip in and out of genres, but you seem to have an ability to understand a lyric and no matter if we've heard, you know, a hundred versions of that classic standard before, you seem to be able to interpret it and sing it and make it your own seemingly quite effortlessly.
2: Do you know that there's a myriad of opportunities in my life every day, that I have an opportunity to lie, either socially, respectfully, or just outright lie. And I do. I take all those opportunities. Um, If I'm being polite to someone and they say, does this look good? Yes, it looks fantastic on you. I'd rather do that than harm them with the truth. Does someone say, um, I don't know, how do you feel about uh, blah, blah, blah in the sea of this political rife? Well, I'll choose the high road because I don't want to upset or be polarising. But with a song, if the song is written well, it's impossible for me not to tell the truth in a song. Like for some reason, the strength of a song keeps me on the straight and narrow and I've never been able to lie singing a song. Wow. I'd rather just not sing it at all. And you'll find you've heard me. I'm actually sometimes quite bullheadish. And in fact, I had one of the a guys saying recently, oh, you can never be told. <laughs> and it's true. I just can't sing shit if I don't actually own it and don't really, it's the worst of the method acting, I think, in me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: when you're, I mean, you get asked all the time, oh, can you deliver singing lessons? And, you know, I want to be mentored by you and, and that kind of thing. Is that something you can teach that ability or where do you go with that?
2: I'm in the middle of having to consider how that could feel. Like I do always want to share experiences. Like I've had three students that I've been mentoring since they were 15 and they're now in their late 20s and it's uh, a gentle thing. It's a gentle, living, breathing occupation. It's not one that I can necessarily put a value to and it's not one that I can necessarily do on cue. If someone were to sit down and say, I've got an hour, give me your best. So on the one hand, it's something I'm deeply interested in. On the other hand, I would have to probably be very, very selective in order to do it well because I'd be expecting and demanding to see that the person was applying whatever I had to tell them into something that actually was something that they felt really strong about. That makes sense. No dilettantes because I don't want people who are half good at everything. You know, I've been that and and it's a fucking awful place to live. Don't be half good at anything. Just do what you do really, really well and the thing you do best, that thing that you do best and it's so easy for you to do, just do that and you'll win. And then when you get into a position where, hey, yeah, you've made all the money you wanted in the world, you've got all of the stability, raising families, blah, 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 then get hobbies. But don't be a dilettante at life.
0: If you could give any piece of advice to kids, particularly kids leaving school and and wondering, is there a future worth having? What should I do? Should I work hard? Should I get a job? Should I try? Can I fulfil my dreams? Is it worth even bothering or should I just give up? It's all hopeless. What would you say to kids right
2: now? I would say try to discover the plane that your mind, your own mind through literature can give you and start reading because I think- Have you ever had that feeling when you're on social media or something where you had a thought and then for some reason a picture flipped over into another space and you went, what was I thinking of a second ago? I had to do something. And I'm thinking that this is actually accumulating and it's more regular phenomena for everyone. I think your own thoughts are being erased by the artificial thoughts we're being offered every day. And so- The exercise of training your mind and exercise of training your ability, you know, that ability to create that thought, that comes from actual like reading. It comes from listening to great orators, really, from history, talking about the way conditions were and and how they resolved them. Listening to elders, you know, really, really listening to people who've done things in their lives. And not just say, oh, you're just simply old, I'm not interested, I want to do it myself, but in fact, open your heart and your head to listening to Elders.
0: Okay, I hope you enjoyed that with uh, Kate Rogers. Next up, legendary frontman from Grammy-winning 80s band Men at Work, Colin Hay. Taken from episode 15 of The Blank Canvas, this conversation with Colin is a phenomenal insight into the challenges that often come with great success. For my taste, this Scottish-born troubadour is right up there with the all-time great songwriters and singers. Enjoy. The song we're gonna play now, Waiting For My Real Life To Begin, which was from your 2000 album, Going Somewhere. What a powerful song. And in 2020, particularly, it resonated with me. I think we're all this year in in that place with that feeling of like, okay, am I going to get to fulfill my dreams? Is this the end? Is it a new beginning? It it feels like a a song for 2020, but clearly it was a song for 2000 as well. Do you want to just give us an insight into that? I wrote it
3: in 1993 and I was sitting actually in this spot where I'm sitting now pretty much exactly the spot I used to have my studio up here and I was working with a friend of mine a guy called Tom Mooney a drummer and he was coming over and we we're going to work on some ideas and he came in and I said how are you doing Tom he said oh you know man I'm, I'm just waiting for my real life to begin and I thought oh that's cool that's an interesting turn of phrase and then I just thought about that and I thought to myself that's what I'd been doing since 1991 i'd been um i was dropped by mca records and i didn't really have a i had no record company that was interested i didn't have any managers or agents or anything like that there was nobody interested really at all in anything that i was doing uh musically but i thought that oh someone was going to come and knock on the door you know and that was a point when he said that and I, then I just wrote the song out, I wrote, you know, in the next like 45-50 minutes I just wrote the words out and, and that was it, you know, it was done and then I kind of I messed around with the with the chords and found the music to it, but the actual lyrics was was the thing that came first in that song, but you know, it was like he opened a door, Tom came in and said, I'm waiting for my real to begin and then, oh there you go, there's the song. And it was really about that idea of that we all have that we're either looking behind us or we're looking in front of us. Next week, it will be fine. You know, and it can be all kinds of things. It can be if you gamble or if I can just make that big score, you know, and we all seem to focus on past events or imagine future events. And uh, a lot of the time we spend ignoring, it's a cliche really, but we spend a lot of time ignoring Where we are in this very moment, we don't take care of that. You know, we're not mindful. A lot of the things that get me through the day or that keep me happy, if you like, they're all really small things. Like, for example, you know, uh, there's a song I have which is about drinking tea, and a lot of it has to do with ritual. A lot of it has to do with establishing new rituals because of the fact that I used to have none or I used to get so fucked up. There was a lot of time got spent doing that. So if you're not doing that anymore, you've got to actually, okay, how am I going to fill my day in a meaningful way? you know? And so a lot of people do this, and I would do it as well, where you, you, sometimes you run around madly in a chaotic way. And some people get a lot done like that, but sometimes you don't. And so I just think, well, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. You know, whatever it is, I'm going to try and do it as well as I can. And then I'll do this other thing, you know. and But with that song, I thought, well, I'm just sitting around waiting to be discovered, if you like. And I thought, that's just not going to happen. You know, I'm going to have to go out. I'm going to have to leave the house and go on the road and find my audience again. You know, and when I decided that I was going to do that, it was amazing because I just thought, OK, I'm starting again. It wasn't like Men at Work hadn't happened, but I couldn't rely on that because it wasn't that. It was something else entirely. No one really knew my name. So I would go on the road. And this is not for just a couple of months or something. This is for like 12, 13 years before I even got signed by a label or we started working with a label who could distribute my material and I mean I made records but I mean I was putting them out which meant that they were very inefficiently distributed you know I would go down to the post office and send cds to people who ordered them from and I would just do it all myself you know and this is for like you know a long time 12-13 years of, of doing that of constantly going out on the road but it was the only thing that really kept me sane and it was the only thing that i could do you know i thought well i can i can do this and i have something which seems to resonate with people because i would play songs and i didn't want to tell jokes and be you know a comedian and stuff but i would tell them something that had happened to me i would for example i would say isn't this weird about the fact that only a very short number of years ago i was playing to 150,000 people And I can count the people who are watching me now, you know, on less than two hands or four hands, you know, sometimes there would be 35, 40 people, you know. But I think about that now and then I would go back and then there'd be 100 people and then there'd be a few more. So it's taken a couple of decades or 25 years or something like that to get it to the point where I can put maybe a thousand people into a room but it's all just simply been because I've taken it like that idea of one audience at a time. Okay, I'm just gonna play to this audience tonight. I'm not gonna think about where I'm gonna get to. I'm not gonna have goals. I'm not gonna think, oh, if only I could play at this festival, or if only this, or if only that, I would just simply play to the audience that was in front of me. And um, that's still basically what I do.
0: Wow, that's astonishing. I'm gonna play the song now, waiting for my real life to begin.
4: my dream I sleep I'm waiting for my real life.
0: Thanks Colin. Okay, next cab off the rank, Mark Isham. Mark's a musician, electronic music pioneer and revered film and television composer. With over 400 movies and television series scored, over 200 albums, 200 major awards and nominations, prolific is certainly the word. Mark delivers some great insights as to how he approaches his craft, in particular his technique for addressing writer's block I found really interesting. Taken from episode 36, please enjoy this conversation with Mark Isham. One of the things I like most about your scores is your ability to, I guess, combine sound design do you call it that as a film composer, or do you just call it, you know, percussive elements?
5: Well, I guess it, part of it can be considered sound design. I mean, there is a sound design department in most films, but that can incorporate even down into the Foley and and, the, and sound effects and everything. So, there, it is a bit of a gray area, but it it's gray enough that I always make a point of learning who is in charge of that on a film, so we don't step on each other's toes, because yes, the music can get very percussive and very aggressive and very noisy, and some sound design can get very musical. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that the two departments aren't competing or doing things that are going to uh, clash and make a make a problem for a, a project. But it's definitely a world that I love, and uh, I do a lot of programming of sounds and, and weirdnesses, and uh, I just happen to think of it as music. <laughs> Well, I think that's
0: clearly what works for you because it's not like, oh, well, that's the sound design department. <laughs> like, you integrate the sound design into your themes and into your other musical components, and that's kind of one of your great strengths.
5: Yeah, it's something that that uh, that I've worked on a lot and learned very early on to just to uh, work collaboratively in the film industry with these with these guys and also learn from them. I've, I've called them up several times and said... You've got this sound. When, when he comes around the corner and sees the car blowing up, what is that? I want to be able to do that. <laughs> so it's, it's fun. It's good fun.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Another thing you seem to really specialize at is the big sport movie. It's like, holy shit, how good is the film Warrior?
5: Well, that's one of my all-time favorite films. Yeah, and, and Gavin, Gavin O'Connor, the director, is, is very... We started off doing Miracle together, which is a wonderful, wonderful sports movie. And on to Warrior, and I've done quite a number of others. 42, the Jackie Robinson story. I mean, there is, for someone who never played sports in their whole life, I somehow am drawn to those... help telling the stories of those moments, you know, when, when the human will and human spirit triumphs.
0: Yeah, incredible. Is that something that drives you? Like, I guess a purpose of your own that you've tapped into is sort of celebrating the strength of the human spirit.
5: I think so. I think that uh, it's it's the most it's one of the strongest things that we can observe about life. I think around us, when you see a whole society come together, I mean, it's the it's the only upside to this pandemic, quite honestly, is when you see a society come together. And push through and help each other and move towards a goal of of bettering things this is what makes life this is what makes life this is life this is the reason to be alive this is (laughs) Mm. and storytelling that I think communicates that is uplifting and inspiring to to help be a part of those moments in your own life so I think that's why I'm drawn to them uh, in life and to help tell the stories of them
0: yeah that's cool A genre that isn't that far away from the sporting film is the the war film. You seem to specialise in that as well. Tell us about, you know, that and I guess why that's the case and how you approach a war film. Is it the same way you approach a sporting film?
5: Well, it is if it has that triumph. (laughs) I mean, not all wars have those moments. I mean, I think it's the beautiful thing about sports because you're experiencing the drama of conflict and the drama of, you know, I fight... But people aren't going to die, and you can have all the feeling of the triumph and the feeling of the camaraderie and the feeling of a group coming together to win against great odds, but you don't have to put your home and your children's lives on the line. Now, war becomes different because you're actually innocent factors are being threatened in war, and therefore I don't know if war films will ever quite have that same innocence (laughs) that a great sports movie will have. There's an innocence about a sports movie. It's, it's, it is Sunday afternoon. <laughs> you know? Now, to that quarterback that's being killed and has to get the ball released, it's not just a Sunday afternoon, but to those of us experiencing it, it is. But if we're pulled out and, and thrown into having to go to war, it, it's different, and I think it's much more complex. Um, I wrote the theme for the American Army, believe it or not, that they used for almost a decade. And I did a, a concert with them once where I went and conducted it with the army band and we did a you know a chat with the audience before the concert. And I realized in talking that yes, I've scored a lot of enactments of victory and heroism. But this theme actually was written and presented to men and women who are doing this in real life. <laughs> And I must admit, I, uh, in listening back, I said, well, I actually did a pretty good job. They liked it enough to, to use it for 10 years as the piece of music that the army rallied behind. And it's, I felt a sense of responsibility in that, because it is, there's a much greater responsibility and risk in everything in the area of war than there is in, in, in anything else, really. Yeah,
0: yeah. You've had, you know, extraordinary successes along the way. No doubt there's been some low points as well, some gigs you, <laughs> you know, you didn't win and we heard about the, um, your first record. Any tips as to how you've got through those times where everything's gone to shit or you, you can't think of how to approach a film or, you know?
5: <laughs> well, you know, strangely enough, the lowest points that register with me are our trumpet player moments where the body gave out, you know? And Because as I, as I mentioned, it's, it's like an athlete to be a, a good trumpet player. You have to be in shape. And, you know, when a quarterback, if their arm gets thrown out in the fourth quarter, <laughs> usually there's a backup. Now, at a band, if the trumpet player loses his chops in the fourth quarter, I don't know if there's a trumpet player standing in the kitchen waiting to go on. So, <laughs> usually you have to get through that gig somehow. And those are the hardest for me. You know, writer's block, I used to get it occasionally, and then I realized I came up with a sort of a little analogy that the writing process is sort of there's two personalities here. There's the gurgitator, I called him, which is just the person that's sitting there just throwing out ideas, right? It's just coming out ideas, ideas, ideas. But right here, there's the editor. <laughs> the editor is the person that says, nah, that's shit. Nah, nobody'll hear that. That that's that's terrible. And if you let the editor give him too much, Control, then it's just nothing comes out, right? And that's writer's block. So you just got to shut the editor up. You just got to say, you know, go have a beer in the next room or something. (laughs) And so I would come up with little tricks of just writing anything. It didn't matter. It it would be shit, but it would be something. And you get the flow going because you have to just be able to outflow out of whatever this is, creative universe, whatever that is, whether you think it's your mind or your spirit or. It doesn't matter, it's there and it's where these ideas come from (laughs) and they have to come out into the physical universe. And whatever technique, you can get them into the physical universe productively, efficiently and with quality, that's the technique for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Whatever works. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Hey, you've worked with an astonishing array of the greatest directors to, you know, Graced the planet for the last forty or fifty years. Robert Redford, the list goes on. I'm not gonna rattle them all off because I probably did in the intro. But, <laughs> um, tell us about um, you know, William Friedkin, Jodie Foster. Tell us about some of the great directors you worked with and perhaps a few things you learned from them along the way.
5: Well, I do think of Redford first because he is one of our biggest movie stars and and he's such an iconic figure. Um, to the point where my wife, who's, who's uh, as gregarious as yours is, um, when she opened the door, to, when he came to the house for the first time, she opened the door and saw Robert Redford standing there. She was actually speechless. <laughs> and he put out his hand and he said, Hi, I'm Bob. <laughs> uh, and that's, that sort of sums up who he is. He's just a very straightforward, simple, lovely, lovely guy and with tremendous talent and tremendous insight into storytelling and i think even as a director he he sees it from an actor's arc so he'll see it all these sort of you know arcs of different characters being woven across this period of time and how they intersect and it gives him a great insight as to how things should move and where the temperament of the lighting and the and the music and everything should be at certain points based on these different people that he as an actor can see how exactly how they're evolving through the, through this storyline. So a lot of his direction would be, you know, at this point, you know, this is the middle for her and, and, and she's not this way, she's this way. And it would just be fascinating to hear him talk because you, you could see that, that uh, he's an actor's director. He's an actor's actor and an actor's director and, and producer. He's uh, sees it all very, very clearly. And, with great insight. Who else have I worked with? I mean, I've worked with a tremendous. Jody is Jody's maybe one of the smartest people I've ever met. <laughs> She's, I did a, a picture with her called Nell, and I did quite a number of pictures with her. But the Nell is the story I remember. We had this first session, and I wrote down all these adjectives of what she wanted the score to be. And I said, well, come back in about two weeks. I should have the first 15 minutes or so sketched out. And so she came back and she said, No, this is this is this isn't quite right. I, I, I wanted this to be this and she said, And what I'm getting from you is this, this, this and this and this and I wanted this, this, this and this. And I said, Well actually, Jody, I have my notes from our last meeting. What you just said this is is exactly what you told me you wanted, and you didn't say those other adjectives. And she said, Really? I said, Yeah And she said, Then I was completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so she said you've done what I've said and I don't like it I don't think it's right so let's start again I apologize or it, she didn't even say I apologize it's just a part of the process it's just I was wow. wrong I was wrong let's start again this is the way I, I, I feel it should be and, and so let's just go back through it and I'll discuss it some more and we can talk about it some more and I, so I said alright give me another two weeks <laughs> and then it went it went totally smooth from there just the ability in a split second to say, I was wrong, you know, let's, let's do it another way. And that's the sign of, I think, a very, very intelligent person.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that uh, snippet from my chat with Mark Isham. The next guest is a storyteller with a very curious mind. Sean Sennett is a musician, singer, songwriter, and one of the leading music writers in the business. His story about bumping into bruce springsteen on the street on a rainy brisbane afternoon is a cracker and definitely got me thinking about the role fate plays the meaning of life and all that good stuff enjoy you've spent time and you've worked with springsteen bowie mccartney these guys could you share a few stories about some of these times and you must have been pretty intimidated meeting some of your heroes and then um I guess, almost nervous to find out whether you were going to find out that they weren't as great as you thought and be disappointed. Talk us through some of those times. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think about, you know, some of the big ones and in context, um, I think I'd been interviewing
6: people for like almost 10 years before I interviewed, you know, what we'd call a global superstar. And, and I think I was very fortunate because I like all kinds of music. Uh, sometimes in the street press world, people would be a bit you know, they would only want to interview really, really cool things. I was up to talking to anybody. So I got to meet a lot of my pop heroes, which was great. And, and it was a bit sort of uh, nerve-wracking when you first, you know, get to meet these people. I remember one of the first interviews I got sent off to do was uh, Tim Finn. And I'd seen Tim front split ends as the first gig I ever saw at night time. It was just blown away. And I was so kind of nervous to be there with the great Tim Finn. I remember we were having this amazing conversation and I looked down and realised 10 minutes in, I'd forgotten to turn the tape recorder on. (laughs) So I was like, can we just circle back to that bit about such and such? But um, probably one of the big, big ones for me was definitely Bruce Springsteen. And that's funny how uh, fate comes into play. Bruce, um, in some ways, he'd stopped being this sort of giant, iconic figure of Born in the USA, and he brought things down to touring on the Tom Jode record, acoustic guitar, storytelling songs. And I remember um, he came to Brisbane. He started the, the Australian tour here, and uh, he was playing QPAC. And the night before he came to do the shows, I had a dream that i met him in the street, and we had a conversation. And the Sunday before the Tuesday gig, I'm just out walking um, with my wife, And I said, do you want to go see a movie? She's like, no, I want to go home. And you know, Lee, when you've got your heart still and seeing a Sunday afternoon movie and you get shut down, I was was probably a little bit stroppy. And so we're heading back towards the car and I I saw this girl on the street that I'd seen like three times during the day. And I said to my wife, oh, it's so weird. I've seen that girl three times. would have been great if I'd seen Bruce Springsteen instead. And she said to me, well, he's walking right down the street now. It's like we're in Alice Street. Opposite the Botanical Gardens in Brisbane, it was raining. There was nobody around, and there was Bruce Springsteen walking towards me with an umbrella. And we were walking down the hill, and she said to me, <laughs> "Don't speak to him," <laughs> which completely threw me. Anyway, I decided to take the ambassadorial approach, and I said, "Put my hand out." I said, "Mr. Springsteen, welcome to Brisbane." He said, "Thank you." It was, you know, what it's like when you're with Kate. He's just about to keep moving. And I said, look, I've got to ask you one question. And I said, um, what was it like playing with Roy Orbison? Because I'm a massive Roy Orbison fan. And there's a great film to be made with Bruce Part of that. And he stopped and he propped himself up for half an hour on his umbrella. And we just talked about Elvis, Roy Orbison, Peter Goralnik, Tony Joe White, just two people on the street talking. I didn't even mention that I uh, owned the local music paper. And we had a great conversation. At the end, he said to me, are you coming to the show on Tuesday night? Um, I think he said, you need tickets? So I went, oh, I'm fine. I've already got myself some tickets. Thanks very much. And I thought that was just amazing coincidence. And then that night, Bruce went to the bar and was telling somebody in the bar that he'd met these people on the street and enjoyed talking to them. And one of the guys overheard it from Sony and said, um, I know that guy. He owns the local music paper. Time off. And Bruce, this is how generous Bruce is, he said, oh, well, ask him if he's interested. Does he want to meet me after the show? We'll do an interview for his magazine, which was incredible. So that was no record company intervention. No publicist organised it. It was just two people meeting on the street and Bruce thinking, yeah, I should do an interview for this independent free magazine in Brisbane, which was incredible. And um, I remember somebody said to me, uh, Ray Martin was there doing something for 60 minutes or something, and he was waiting outside. and A fan said, Um, Ray, why are you waiting out here? And he said, Oh, because he's inside talking to some kiddie man on the street for his magazine, which is brilliant. And, and then after that, it kind of, in a way, I guess, as I said, I'd probably done a thousand interviews before that, but then it rolled on to people like, uh, you know, it was, it was an insane kind of period where you get a phone call and somebody said, would you like to interview you too in Perth? We'll fly you to Perth. I'm thinking, wow, I've never been to Perth before. That'd be amazing. Then they call back and go, good news and bad news, Perth's been cancelled. You're like, oh, no, really want to go to Perth. Would you like to go to South America instead? Just incredible. Flew to South America. It was when they had the lemon. <laughs> you're standing inside the lemon. And you're thinking, this is just, you know, wonderful. And to get to talk to those people about their art, It's just a joy, really, for a music fan like myself.
0: Wow. Mate, that's incredible. Thanks for sharing that. I can't believe that Springsteen moment. Yeah. Holy cow. So you had the dream. Do you think you saw the future or you were just visually putting it there in some way? I mean, do you have any insights even of the esoteric nature as to how that came about?
6: No, I don't, but I, I, I do really put a lot of stock in those things about your dreams and, uh, you know, projecting things and uh, thinking about things or just having your spider senses up, as we call them, and just being aware of what's going on around you. And, I mean, that's that a complete random thing that I'd bump into him. The weird thing is I'd had the dream the night before that I'd met him when we had a conversation. Um, I don't, can't really explain that, but uh, you, you know what it's like in life. Sometimes you're in a particular place and you think, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. And similarly, there's other times you think, this isn't where I'm meant to be. I shouldn't be here.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all about your perceptions and whether they're on. A lot of the music business takes place in pubs and clubs and venues where there's a lot of drinking and drugs and what have you. I have noticed over the years, I mean, I've seen you have a beer here and there, but you don't seem to be a big drinker. Is that something that's been like that right from the start?
6: Yeah, it is, and um, I kind of regret it in some ways. I think I'd have had a lot more fun if I'd have been a big drinker. But um, <laughs> for whatever reason, when I was a kid, I kind of was always very conscious of my work, and I thought I don't want to turn up somewhere and get smashed and be carried out. And I, I don't know, I just I, I really cared about the profession and the writing, and I, I wanted to devote myself to that. So if I was out at a thing, I I would definitely make an effort not to get smashed. And I think that kind of gave me some longevity in the uh, the writing business. But there's a lot yeah, of great well, writers that did get smashed too and they're still going as well, so <laughs> ease to their own.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you've definitely been incredibly prolific over a long period of time and really everything I've read is always really sharp and you're at the top of your game. So, uh, you know, I'd have to say it's been a successful action for you, even though you might have missed out on a few big <laughs> big nights along the way. Definitely, guarantee it. <laughs> Jane and Jimmy Barnes is up next. Well, not much hasn't been said about the great Jimmy Barnes, but this insight into the dynamic between him and his wife Jane uh, is pretty interesting. This is the final piece of the musical Best Of episode and features Jane and Jimmy Barnes. Funnily enough, I've heard Jimmy described as Australia's Bruce Springsteen, so this seemed like a good one to follow Sean's The Boss story. Jimmy has racked up 19 number one albums in Australia and for over 40 years has delivered some of our most iconic live performances. And more recently, Jimmy's memoirs have been breaking records, becoming the most successful biographical series in Australian publishing history. This chat delivers plenty of laughs and insights into the yin and yang that makes these two legends tick. Jimmy, you've been through some dark times and no doubt Jane and the family have, you know, when you've written about it, helped get you through that and you've come out the other side and you're in fine form and entertaining millions daily. (laughs) (laughs) Like through some of those times where Jimmy was being so self-destructive, it must have been worrisome and heartbreaking at times. What would you say to him to, like, pull him out? Well,
7: I don't know if I was sort of probably a bit insensitive to it or I didn't look at it like it was my, I don't know. People say, oh, no, you saved his life, all this stuff. But I think that he did that himself. I don't know. I just let him know that he was very loved and that he was certainly the love of my life. And whatever it is, you know, we're there. I'm there and, you know, we're all there. My family were all there. Yeah, because I, I, was, to... I wasn't
8: used to being part of a family, really, you know, because my family was so dysfunctional as I grew up. And then my next family became was a rock and roll band, you know, was called Chisel. Because
7: so, um, so... with us, I think, you know, my sisters, um, we're very, very close. We've, we live next door to each other and, you know, we come with each other. Yeah. We're very, very close and, and, and also, they were always
8: there. For and culturally, you know, like, I mean, Jane's family, Jane's family would have arguments in fights like any family, you know, but you know, they'd, they'd argue and then two minutes later, you know, would you like something to eat? You know, and it'd be really <laughs> sweet. My family are Scottish, you know, when we start a fight, it goes for years. <laughs> I know. You know, we feud. <laughs> they you know, I, I would not talk to my mum for years you know you and jenna go jenna you can't not talk to your mum what are you doing i said she I, started it you know you know and, and i would say
7: jimmy i could never you know and we'd discuss it and we'd say there's nothing that could happen between my girls and i or my son where i couldn't pick up the phone to them for a year this is after a year like, and I said, you need to call your mom. And I'm going, oh, I don't you know? know. I don't know. And so whatever it is, <laughs> I guess we were so different. Yeah. That it was nothing for me to say things like that. Right. Like, you know, it's okay, you know, it's okay if we don't agree. It's okay if somebody doesn't like you or, <laughs> you know, it's not the end of the world. It's, we love you. Yeah. We don't like you all the time, but, you know, it's okay. <laughs>
0: so long, I mean, long as you get it. Which really pure. made me worse was, You don't like
7: me? That's all I heard. I know. It was, that was pure, pure I and here. honest. It was pure think, and honest. They, and they, they don't like me.
8: me. Oh, my God. I,
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we like to say, long as you're getting it right more than you're getting it wrong. That, yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah hey um i really enjoyed learning more about your family jane and particularly the golden buddha can you tell us about that what a wild story
7: it is a wild story my my grandfather um went to thailand from china before the revolution and i think he comes from a family of merchants and medical family chinese medicine and he went over to thailand he had 26 children seven wives <laughs> and um, oh. cuz in those days it was this yes it was a different life and it meant all sorts of different things mainly that he was wealthy and he's as long as you were able to keep everybody in the same manner every family that you have so we he, blokes like that in Scotland
8: too they all <laughs> live, they all lived in hovels <laughs>
7: <laughs> but the um <laughs> yes he had uh, this big plaster buddha that was stored in one of his basements in, Ch- in china yeah big part of chinatown in bangkok and um it was covered in plaster and in in ancient times the thais used to be cover warring. their treasures they'd be warring with burma and the burmese would raid and steal so, the treasures. so they used to cover their treasures in plaster but you know grandfather didn't know that and he tried to lift it out of the basement because I think there was some flooding and, of so course, heavy. it was so heavy that the crane snapped, the crane broke, and the, a chink of plaster came off and revealed this gold and it is the so seven biggest. Tons, seven, I, think it's, I think it's yeah, between six and seven tonnes of solid gold Yeah, and it's the biggest piece of gold in the world and he gave it to the temple. What, I uh, what did I meet in, in, China in Chinatown? He, he's Buddha. buried there. And a lot has happened since then. And as you can imagine, you know, with powers, and they've actually written him out of the history, but there's an article about him in one of the there. Time magazines in the 60s, and he's buried there. So they can't sort of change that. And, you know, when you go there, yeah. they, they've moved the, the Buddha into a new pagoda that sort of... Somebody else built, has claimed that's this and all of that. But, you know, he's buried there. They can't move him. And
8: It was incredible. The the Buddha. That's our legacy. They moved that Buddha to uh, Ayutthaya for a while, the the old capital, moving it around to keep away from these raiding Burmese. And it ended up, you know, in this cellar. And somehow in all the movie, the people who moved it got killed or whatever, and it was just forgotten about you know in the turmoil yes and, well, and, and, in and, the gens, and there was lots of stone buddhas that they had in storage ready to put out somewhere else you know and this is just another mm-hmm. stone looking buddha
0: wow it's unbelievable
7: have yeah, you been to bangkok
0: oh yeah yeah i've worked up there i've you know directed commercials and things up there it's an incredible have place you
7: visited this, this yes, old i have absolutely it because, because it's a you know it's not your flash temple it's now they. have the you the Buddha's the, the Buddha's the. It's he's just. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: incredible. With your dad having come from China to Thailand, did he adopt Buddhism as a as a religion?
7: My grandfather.
0: Oh, okay. My
7: grandfather came from China. Right. Yes. Okay. You know. Um, he was Buddhist anyway, wasn't he? Yes, I think so. He was Buddhist. Yeah. He, you know. Well, my grandmother was his first Thai <laughs> wife. Wife number four.
0: Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing?
7: Amazing. So it's, incredible yeah, story. it's And it's, you know, not that long ago. when you think I mean, it Jane's about book would be much more interesting than mine.
8: I, I keep telling the publishers, I said, you want a story? Get this story. <laughs>
7: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. Well, clearly, you know, whether you're practicing spiritually or not, Jane, your approach, your Thai sensibility has obviously been a calming balm, I guess you could say, at times for Jimmy. Not all the time, mate, but sometimes.
4: I'm the it most aggressive
8: time. Scottish Buddhist in the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Scottish uh, Buddhism, you know, like uh, it's sort of it's a bit more physical, Scottish uh, Buddhism. <laughs> uh, no, I like it. It's a good combination. Yeah, it is. It's good. I've learned a lot from Jane. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Hey, I'd like to play a song if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Loving the new album, Flesh and Blood, it's a cracker of a song. And, you know, it seems to, I guess, communicate a lot about the strength of the family and this point in your life.
8: Yeah, well, you know, I wrote that song particularly because, you know, like I remember looking at my kids in my one of my kids' eyes one day and I couldn't see myself in there. And, and that was scary because I could see the good and the bad. But... The thing is, um obviously, that DNA thing, you know, they got they got all my my good and bad, but they also got all Jane's good and bad. So the kids have new software. We like to talk about them being, being like. I had
7: the latest model of computer. They're the latest model of us. Yeah. And so, you and know, the, the things that yeah. I, that would have stopped me,
8: you know, that held me back, you know, that I was dealing with when I was 50, they dealt with when they were 15, you know. You see, so, uh, I don't
7: see much bad in them, you know. It's interesting. No, no, you it's just see no, bad you can see, no,
8: not bad, but no,
7: no, bad, bad in,
8: you know, like things that worry you. Right. You know, and I can see, you can see me in them.
7: I can see, <laughs> and see this looking. stuff. And this,
8: sometimes, you know, you say, oh, you know, that reminds me a bit of your mother. But, but you,
7: know, they're, <laughs> they, you know, that's they get, not bad things.
8: You know? No, they are bad things. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> no, because
7: with, mixed with, the, with what the programming, and what you, how you bring them up, stubbornness is a fine line between that and fortitude. Or resilience yeah you know
0: a, a, absolutely no, don't you don't want to yeah you don't want to knock the spirit out of them life's tough but no but, no, no, but they do a have a different software they,
8: they have different software and they're mm. they like the 2.0 version of you you know and yeah. the things that were problems for you aren't problems for them and so they don't have to deal with that well same i stuff. think
7: they can see that problem recognize that in you and there's yeah. that that opportunity for right. us to say hey you know how mom gets or dad gets like this? Yeah, well, Just- particularly dad. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah.
7: <laughs> and
8: um, and so so and I wrote what- the song about it. And the thing is, in the end, it's you know they, they have all that, and all you can do is is give them all the tools you can give them. Teach them about love. Teach them to be decent. Teach them to be caring. Teach them to be giving,
7: kind, open, yeah.
8: kind. And if you give them all those tools, they're going to make their own way, and they're going to make their own mistakes, and they're going to do fine.
1: You know.
0: Sounds like a plan. Here's the song.
9: My flesh and blood get the best of me But there's a darkness run deeply through their veins Can see me in their Flesh and blood walk tall and strong But I know inside sometimes that they get scared And it can make them blind You see, I tried to teach them how to swim through walls And blood I can see the light of the new sunrise when I'm looking to their right and I know that they'll get back my flesh and blood have the world laid out right in front of them and their hearts will be their guides and taken in their stride.
0: Thanks for listening to this first episode in the Best Off series of The Blank Canvas. It's been an eclectic mix of musicians, managers and composers. If you like the episode, please share it with a friend, post a screenshot, do all that stuff you probably know how to do by now. It's 2023. And don't forget, live large.
6: The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc., and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.